Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord, everyone. Praise the Lord. Let's give the Lord a big cheer this morning. Amen. Are you glad to be in the house? Amen. I'm like Joshua now from me and my house. I'm going to serve the Lord. Amen. Before we get started with focused prayer, I want to start announcements. Remember, this Wednesday night, we have missionaries, brother and sister Blackman from Guinea with us. On March the 9th, we have hugs. We'll meet in the fellowship hall from 7 to 9 o'clock. For more information, see Sister Chelsea. On March the 24th will be our Hee Haw Dinner Theater. I'm excited about that. At 6 p.m., tickets are pre-sold only. Adults 12 and up are $15. Children 5 through 11 are $8. Children 4 and under are free. You can buy your tickets online through the church website. April 5th and 7th is the men's conference in Ocala. Uh, Thursday through Saturday, the tickets are $145. Friday through Saturday, the $85. These prices include registration in your hotel. See Brother Donnie Osborne. Amen. April the 26th and 28th is a ladies' conference. It's a $30 registration due April the 4th. If you haven't reserved a room, make sure you do so ASAP. Multiple events are going on between Gainesville and Ocala, and rooms are going fast. Church, say Amen. This week's focus prayer is the importance of the family. And I thought about after we got that yesterday, I thought about how that in Genesis 2:18, and it said, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help me for him. And the married men say, Amen. Amen. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. As we all know that that's, Brother Wayne, that's what the devil's trying to do is separate the family. He knows if he can bust up that family structure, then he's got it messed up. But I don't know about y'all, but I'm glad to have a wife that serves God, prays for me, and encourages me. We have children by the grace of God that are serving God. I'm so thankful to have a wife that will stand behind you and support you, Brother Darrell. You know, when your arms are lifted down as, as Aaron and her lifted up Moses' hand, she's there to lift us up. And, and I'm thankful for that because I understand, Brother Ben, the importance of, 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 of the father, the husband, leading the family and being the bishop over his home and, because that's what Satan wants to do is demolish the family if he can get that wiped out. So this, we're going to just, uh, uh, four little points out we're going to, pray on this morning. Let us pray for the unity and the demonstration of a godly love among your family. Let us ask for 
the sermon as to how the enemy is trying to affect the family and the wisdom to know how to respond in prayer and action. Let us pray for healing of negative words and emotional wounds. And let us ask for wisdom to maintain proper priorities between God, ministry, work, and family. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Precious Jesus. God, we just thank you. We thank you for making us a helpmate. Thank you for our children, God. But most of all, we thank you for you, God. God, that you lead us and guide us into all truth, God. God, you said it's not good that man should be alone, but you made us a helpmate. God, we thank you for our wives. We thank you for our children, God. But we thank you most of all, God, for you, God. Thank you for the shepherd and his, his wife to lead us and guide us, God. We just thank you for that. Thank you for each and every one that's here this morning, God. Help us, God. Help us, God, to hold our tongue, God, and help us not to say things that break and tear down. But, God, let us look and encourage and, and, and just help each and every one of us, God, to be better husbands, God, better wives, better children, God, that we might be better servants to you, God, because, God, we just love you. And God, we just praise you, God. We just ask you to pour your sweet Holy Ghost out in this house this morning, God. God, we just thank you for being so merciful to us, Lord, and thank you for the desire that you placed in our heart, God, because truly we want to be like Joshua said, for me and my house. We want to serve the Lord, God. We want to serve the Lord. We want to be found faithful, God, in the end, God. We just love you. Let's give the Lord a big cheer, church. Give the Lord a big cheer. God is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Jesus, God, bless our families. Amen. Build a hedge about them. There's not a more important prayer that we could pray and certainly not a more timely prayer than we can pray than to pray for our families. Let's ask God to just touch the word to our heart today. You can be seated and let's make a journey together this morning in the name of the Lord. We are going to be in the month of March uh, beginning a new series entitled Portraits of Grace. And so I have often said uh, to people that grace sometimes comes in strange packages. When we hear the word grace, we get a warm and fuzzy feeling and think that grace is that, that divine interception that just comes to us and it feels so right and it just uh, everything just fits right in place. But sometimes grace comes in strange packages. We never know. Um, the Bible says uh, in the book of Isaiah 57 and 1, we don't like to think along these lines, but the Bible says in Isaiah 15 and 1 refers to sometimes the righteous being taken out for the evil that was, that was to come. And so we, we think, well, how could it be a good thing to lose someone, perhaps, of what we deem prematurely? But grace sometimes comes in strange packages for the evil which was to come. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at this. We're going to be talking about uh, grace today, uh, grace that confronts. That is the title of our lesson today. So throughout the, the month of March, we're going to be looking at portraits of grace, and we will look at that in, in a couple of different uh, variations. And sometimes grace is confrontational. And so I want to turn our attention to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12, and uh, from here, we're going to begin reading in verse number seven. You may need to reset that. The book of Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse number seven. 
the Bible says, and we're gonna read down through verse number 10. Verse number seven says, and Nathan said to David, thou art the man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I anointed thee king over Israel and delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, the Lord said, if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. If that hadn't been enough, all you had to do was raise your hand and I would have given you anything you would have wanted. I think it's, I think it's safe to read that into scripture, wouldn't you think? He said, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. And so this is a fairly familiar passage of scripture to several of us here today. How that a man looked at another man's wife and just thought it enough, I can have her because I am the king and with my word and with my command, she will be mine. And um, the particular passage of scripture that we're picking up on now is where Nathan, the prophet of God, confronted David about this decision, this ill-time decision. Manned space flight has always intrigued humanity. With eyes fixed toward heaven, we have watched as astronauts through the decades have braved the unknown. Moon landings captivated the world and have culminated with man taking his first steps on the lunar surface. On April the 12th, 1981, NASA moved into what many of us today know as the shuttle era. During this time, the world witnessed two major catastrophes of the shuttle era. The Challenger in 1986 exploded only seconds after liftoff. And then Columbia in 2003 disintegrated minutes before landing. These Testaments to human engineering and courage were not defeated by some celestial phenomenon, but they were each defeated by an internal weakness. If you were around and remember those fateful events, then you may remember that the Challenger was brought down by a simple O-ring seal that was not designed to handle the unusually cold temperatures of that January Florida morning. The Columbia was brought down by a two-pound piece of foam insulation that fell at launch and damaged the edge of the shuttle's left wing. It was just two very, very small things that we could think, what would it matter? What would it matter? But it mattered much. In space exploration and in life, we have often found that it really is the little things that grow into big things. Solomon was right when he penned the words about the little foxes that spoil the vine. 
how merciful it would have been to not only these astronauts, but to their families. If someone had discovered these fatal flaws in each of these missions prior to their departure, I'm sure there would have been a momentary disappointment over the, a mission that was lost or at least a mission that was delayed. But that disappointment would have faded into everlasting gratitude over the lives that were saved. So since the fall of man, God's highest creation, humanity, has been flawed. For all of its creativity, for all of man's ingenuity, humanity has an innate fatal flaw, and that is our sinful nature. I wanna set everybody's mind at ease here today and tell you that I'm talking about every person in this room. So I don't want you to waste any more time trying to figure out who I'm talking to today. <laughs> we all have this fatal flaw of a sinful nature. I don't care how long ago or just how many few minutes ago it was you got through speaking in tongues. We still have a sinful nature that will rear its head sometimes unannounced. We don't even know. It is just that sinful nature. And if we leave that sinful nature left unchecked, what starts small will eventually end in wreck and, and chaos. No one's life perhaps more reveals the paradox that is found within humanity than the life of David, the man at the center of our story today. His accomplishments were many. We have them chronicled in a book we call the Bible. He wrote Psalms, he slew giants, he gained great loyalty of the hearts of the people. Almost like the rock that he slung at Goliath that found its intended mark in the forehead, David rarely missed the mark, rarely. He was a man of war, he was a man that was very, very astute at the things that he did. He was a great shepherd, he was a great songwriter, he was a man who understood. But sadly, just as his accomplishments are chronicled for us, also we have uh, vivid portraits of his failures as well. Amen. David, when he was confronted with his sin, he confessed his sin, and it was right there that God's true nature overrode the fallen nature of man. And how many times have we needed God's restorative nature to touch our fallen nature. It's, in, it's important to understand that grace is not a single faceted issue. In 1 Peter 4 and 10, Simon Peter referred to grace in this fashion. He talked about the manifold grace of God, the manifold grace of God. The word manifold means many-sided or, or multidimensional. One of the many sides of grace is confrontation. And so we don't think about grace and confrontation, often put those in the same sentence, but it, it sometimes is, is just that true, that someone that by grace intercepts our life in confrontation because God loves us too much to leave us as we are. There's not a child in the, in the world or very few children in the world that would not just rather they not be corrected. There are very few children that like correction, very few adults like correction. But sometimes God loves us too much to leave us and parents that truly love their children are going to love them too much to be their pal at the expense of being their parent. And so there's grace sometimes that confronts. And so Nathan, a prophet in Israel, 
I think it's apparent from, uh, from what we hear and see here today in other events of his life, I think it's safe to say that Nathan had the ear of David. Nathan is mentioned three times in three very significant moments of David's life. When David desired to build the house for the Lord in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan first said, go do what's in your heart. But the Lord dealt with Nathan through the night. He went back to, to David and said, you're not gonna be able to do that. And so he was a voice in the, in the life of David. When David was dying and needed to transition the crown to the next generation, we find Nathan, he is present and counted for. And again, another important intersection in his life. And then at the center of our text today, when David was confronted for his sin with Bathsheba, amen, we see him there as a voice that was willing to be heard. A prophet uh, to confront a king now, I think is something we have to understand, that's pretty serious business. He was the prophet, but David was the king. Amen, so we have to understand that they're at work, at play here are two important kingdoms two important governments, if I could say it. There was a heavenly government and an earthly government that was sitting in, in the same room. And so for Nathan to confront David about his sin was a very serious thing because with a single command, David could have also had Nathan executed. And uh, so if you, you know, sometimes we're a little bit hesitant to, to uh, confront people because we're worried about our friendship worried about what that made, how much damage may come as the end result of that. But Nathan had a little bit more to think about. He had to think about his life. <laughs> and uh, so he had a lot to consider, but he understood that at the end of the day, the heart of the matter, that Nathan really didn't have a choice because he was gonna have to stand before the Lord. The king had committed a grave injustice and that injustice would not just affect those that were sitting at the center of this table but it was going to threaten all of Israel if we leave this go unaddressed. Nathan, I think, must have known that the king loved the story because when Nathan approached David, he presents to him a fairly eloquent story and he does it with great care and precision. Nathan told David that a traveler came to a wealthy man's house and that the wealthy man decided to prepare a meal for his traveler. That all sounds pretty commonplace. However, rather than the wealthy man choosing a lamb from his own many flocks, he stole a poor man's only ewe lamb. David was livid, and so David then pronounced a judgment upon this man at the center of the story. David's judgment, I think it's important to understand that David's judgment was not a knee-jerk reaction to the story that had just been shared to him. This was not an emotional decision, but David was making a decision based on the law of Moses. And you can find that in the book of Exodus chapter 22 and verse number one. That if a oxen is stolen, if, I, if memory serves me correctly, if an oxen is stolen, you have to replace that, an oxen is killed, you have to replace that one oxen with five oxen. And if a sheep is killed, then you have to replace that one killed sheep, dead sheep with four. And so this was, David was right here in the middle of Exodus chapter 22 and one. And so then David pronounces this judgment in part. I'm gonna talk about the first part of this judgment. We'll come back to the next part of it in just a few minutes. But in the, in the first part, he said there would, there would have to be a fourfold reconciliation to the man that had lost his sheep. 
And so if David says, Nathan, if what you're telling me is true, then you need to let this man know that he has to restore this man's sheep uh, four times and that according to the law, he would lose his life as well. And it was there, right there at that intersection, you stopped the film, if you will. And Nathan said, thou art the man. I find those words chilling. Thou art the man. Nathan had just so systematically led him to the noose around his own neck. In essence, David just mere seconds ago pronounced judgment upon his own life. Amen. And Nathan confirmed that word. Thou art the man. And so I don't want to get away too far from our story today, but in fact, David did lose four sons. He did pay four times. He did pay four times. The son of Bathsheba, he lost a son by the name of Amnon, he lost a son by the name of Absalom, and he lost a son by the name of Adonijah. So you see what happened in secret was now being played out in living color for the entire world to see. It's our nature. It is the nature of humanity to conceal things. It's in the nature of humanity to just kind of bury things and, and, uh, and we're just gonna put that over here and we're gonna pretend that it didn't happen. And so after partaking of the, un, the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did what? They concealed themselves. They hid themselves from God. And so the very first question that God ever posed to humanity in the garden, the very first question ever posed from God in scripture was Genesis three and nine, where art thou? Where are you hiding? We hide from God, we hide from one another. Sadly, we often hide from ourselves, pretending that we are all of that in a bag of chips. And ignoring fatal, sometimes fatal flaws in our life that if they are not dealt with, they're, they're not gonna go away just because we're getting older. They're not gonna go away just because we're married. They're not gonna go away just because we now have children. We gotta deal with these fatal flaws. We have to deal with them. And so uh, they, this is where David was. After his sin with Bathsheba and after he effectively murdered her husband, David just acted like nothing was wrong. He was pretending that if, if you remember the story that Uriah was killed in battle and all is well and, and uh, just, you know, he just felt sorry for Bathsheba so he married her and she has a child and they're gonna raise a child and all is well. But everything is not well. He married Bathsheba, carried on like everything was okay. The word hypocrisy, we hear the word hypocrite a lot. I don't know how many times through the years that people have told me, well, I don't want to go to church with all those hypocrites. I, have a, I just have a patent answer for people who say that. I said, well, I would go to, rather go to church with a few hypocrites than to go to hell with all of them. <laughs> Amen. We're just gonna go with a few. I feel like I'm getting a better end of the deal because life is just a vapor, if James is correct. And uh, so it's not gonna be a short ride. I'd rather just make a short trip with a few than to make a long trip with all of them. Amen. Hypocrites are those who, <laughs> the, word hypo, the word hypocrisy uh, means play acting. And, and hypocrites are those who wear masks to try to hide the gap between their public image and their private character. Amen. They want to try to hide, they kind of build and close in that void between who people think they are and who they really are. And so the consequences of our, of our 
of our concealment are often quite costly. I read something yesterday, I shared this with my wife and I found this pretty alarming. A recent article in Psychology Today summarized the damaging damaging effects of harboring deep and painful secrets, deep and painful secrets. In a study, and this is a recent study done in, the book in, in March of last year, but a study in the 1970s by the University of Texas, researchers found that children who had been abused sexually had a greater likelihood of health issues in later years. Now think about that. Especially if they hid these events from others. Studies in the 80s concluded what they referred to as secret keepers, that secret keepers are more likely to have illnesses, some small but some great, and, and they're more likely to have those illnesses in later years than those who shared their secrets. Research shows that secretive people are more prone to depression, to addictions, to illnesses, and other debilitating factors. These buried things, you see, have a tendency to resurrect. Now, I, am, I wanna be clear And just for the sake of a little maintenance right here, I want to be clear in what I'm saying. I don't think that we should just put our wares out all over the world and all in the street. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I'm telling you that that when we try to hide things without sharing them in safe places, even if that safe place is with the Lord, we need to understand that at some point these things are going to come up. They're going to resurrect. Those buried things have the potential to, to rise again Buried acorns become oaks just as hidden sins become open catastrophes. We often, in our human journey of life, we often see people's lives who just all of a sudden, in our terminology, all of a sudden just implode and we think, wow, just out of nowhere. Uh Uh-uh. No. Rarely does something just happen out of a vacuum, but it was something hidden deep within we can be sure that hidden sins are going to be revealed. Solomon said that those who conceal sins are not going to prosper, but mercy is found if sins are confessed and forsaken. The book of Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, here's where Solomon refers to this. He says, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Leave that there for just a moment because there's the key. It's not just about talking about it, but it's also forsaking it. Amen, I'm gonna confess this. Why? Not just so that I can, you know, post something on Facebook or so that I can just get out there and get the sympathy of somebody, but I gotta confess this and I gotta forsake this. I gotta get beyond this. The path between concealment and confession can be short or it can be long. How quick we own up to our failures often determines how close we are to the heart of God. Amen, if we're a long ways from God, we're pretty comfortable keeping those things buried a while. But if we are really living close to God, we want those things on the table. I wanna get this dealt with. I need your mercy and your hand in my life. We sometimes find it very, very hard to come clean with God and hard to come clean with other people, amen. But we really need to understand the value of that process and this is why repentance in some cases is the most difficult part of the salvation process. We need God to help us to understand the value of just saying, Lord, I need you. I need to die out to myself, amen. People prefer to live a lie and and, and, uh, to look, 
themselves look look and just cover their sin, just kind of put it all under the a coat of paint. We'll just make all of this better by just waxing over something or glossing over something. But we really need the power of God to confront us. We truly need the power of God to confront us. People prefer to just kind of live in that in, in that uh, hodgepodge area, that mystical area of in-between, but there really is no such thing as in-between. We're gonna love one and hate the other. We're gonna hold one and let go of the other. Amen, we just need to get vulnerable in the presence of the Lord and say, God, I need you to help me. I, I need you to let your word, whether it's the written word, the read word, the preached word, the taught word, let your word reveal some things in me and then I need to go deal with those things. I need to take care of that. Amen, after all, the, the ironic thing about our concealment is that God already knows. It's not hidden from God. I don't know why we're ashamed to talk to God about it. He was watching it all unfold. He knows and he still loves us and that's why we call his grace amazing and that's why it is amazing. God graciously reveals what we're trying to hide. In the book of Ephesians chapter two and verse eight, Paul called grace the gift of God, the gift of God. If we've ever received grace in our lives, we have received one of the greatest gifts that we can ever have. <laughs> As I mentioned previously, God had already used Nathan at pivotal moments in David's life. So it was a trusted voice. It was a trusted friend. It was a trusted prophet. David was convicted that he dwelt in a nice home and yet the ark of God was in a tent. And so he was determined to build God a house Nathan was sent by God after confirming that, as I mentioned a moment ago, that he could go do what was in his heart and then the Lord dealt with Nathan and he had to go back to that person. I'm gonna tell you that I've had those same experiences in, in my pastoral experience, that something just seemed right and then God would deal with me later. And I've had to go back to people and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, there may be a flaw with this. There may be something wrong here. And I've always been so impressed with the spirit of David and the reaction of David over this because God used Nathan to remind David that he is not going to be able to build the temple. David's hands, once known for worship, now were hands covered with blood from war and murder and all those things. And God is gonna to have to use a different set of hands to build the house. I have often thought at this intersection it would have been so easy for Nathan, for David to have been offended, uh, for him to got a bad spirit and just said, well, if that's how it's gonna be, then I'm not gonna have anything to do with it. But he didn't take his tools and go home. You can read in scripture that David spent the rest of his life, amen, he spent the rest of his life gathering materials to help Solomon build the temple. Nathan had many, many contacts. Just Hiram is one that comes to mind. Nathan had many contacts of people that he had met through the years who were cutters of timber and hewers of stone. And, and so with all of these contacts, he said, well, if I can't build it, just let Solomon figure it out on his own. But David said, you know what? I'm gonna use the resources and I'm gonna use my influence and I'm gonna help. I can't build it because my hands are too bloody, but it's still a passion in my heart 
Amen. I, I don't really understand people that would rather rather watch something just kind of disintegrate and fail if they can't be sitting in the engineer's seat. Amen. David was clearly sat down. You can't do that. You cannot do that because, and, and, and David understood that Nathan was right. He was not on a high horse. And David said, you know what? You're right, but I will dedicate the rest of my life to just doing. And so Nathan's, I think, was certainly a man used of God. And then we see how diplomatic he was when he went to David the second time. Amen. How do you approach a king? How are you going to take care of this? How are you going to broach this subject. Amen. God has two approaches in confronting sin. We find this consistent through scripture. God confronts sin either with grace or with judgment. Amen. Grace is us falling on the rock. Absolutely. Judgment is the rock falling on us. We can see each of those in scripture. The kind of treatment that in John chapter 8 where Jesus was brought the woman who was found in adultery and we see how gracefully that the Lord dealt with her and how restorative he was in his actions toward her. Go and sin no more. He wasn't glossing over uh, her sin but then we see the judgment of God in the, and, and the treatment of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the apostles and judgment in Acts 5 fell upon their lives. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11 and verse number 22 Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Amen. Now, just think about those two contrasting images. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. We are living in a day, in this hour, where only people want to behold the goodness of God and not talk about the severity of God. Amen, but I want tonight, uh, today to us to understand that, that Paul really is correct, that we need to behold and understand to view not just the goodness of God, but the severity of God. David knew, amen, David knew what we know today, that chains can be broken, but scars will remain with us, amen, for the rest of our lives many times. Nathan, the man of God, chose grace, that gift of God, that gift of God. God did not send a sledgehammer to correct this man after his own heart, but he sent a scalpel to cut away the deception out of David's life. I gotta take care of this. We gotta deal with this. Grace destroys the sin, but it saves the sinner. And so using a parable, the prophet led the, the king to a place of revelation. And so consequently, David saw his act as an offense to God, an offense to God. It is that hand of grace that walked him right to a place of repentance. I'm gonna tell you, God can do only what God can do. There are just some things we need to leave in the hands of God because his hands can produce things that we never dare can ever replicate ourselves. We need to let that be in the right hands. When Keith Jarrett sat down to play a concert recording before a live audience, he knew in an instant that his work was cut out for him. Through some confusion, the concert grand piano had not been delivered to the opera house. And so the only piano that was there on site was deemed unplayable. 
its strings were out of tune, the pedals stuck, the black notes in the middle just did not work. But the master took an unplayable piano and produced a concert so gorgeous and so mysterious that it still ranks as the best-selling solo piano album of all times. Everyone understood, everyone on the inside at least understood that the majesty was not in the piano, certainly not on this night. Rather, the magnificence of that night was the fact that there was a master sitting at the keys. It was he who took the unplayable and made memorable music. And I will tell you today that God is still in that kind of business. We look at our lives and we think what a mess. The keys are sticking, the pedals are broken. It's all out of tune. It is so disorganizing and associated with so much chaos that I could never be whole. I could never be correct. And you know what? in and of yourself and on your own, we are correct about that. But if we can get honest and let grace confrontationally walk into our lives and let the master of this world set at the keys of our life, he can produce in us and from us what could come no other way. Thank God for his grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Hallelujah. God takes those imperfect lives. God takes poor choices and God makes them whole. He works with what we give him to make a masterpiece. In fact, that is one translation of the word workmanship. Ephesians 2 and 10, the Bible says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. And so he's willing to extend himself if we are willing to let him work in our lives. And so in order for grace to be effective, grace has to be received. If God is going to do anything in our lives, we must receive what he's trying to do in our lives. In 1892, a prisoner that was condemned to hang was pardoned by the then U.S. President Andrew Jackson. The irony of it all was that the prisoner refused the pardon. So when asked to rule on the matter, John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, made this statement. He said, a pardon is an act of grace, but delivery is not completed without acceptance. So you can have the highest voice in the land that says you're free. But if you don't accept the pardon, then you have silenced the highest voice in government. Amen. And there are people today that are so bound by their past and they're bound by their sin because they just cannot and will not accept the grace of God that is trying to work in their life. And we can try to blame it on whoever. We can try to blame it on the Sunday school teacher. We can try to blame it on the pastor, the youth director. We can try to blame it on the music or the or how cold or how loud the music. We can try to blame it on a lot of things. But you see, no matter how much grace is extended 
to us. If we don't take that and pull it into our life, amen, a pardon is an act of grace, but delivery is not complete without acceptance. Simply put, it's possible to refuse an act of grace. And so ignore grace is ineffective. So to receive grace, we have to have faith. It requires faith. If grace is God's long arm reaching down, then faith is man's short arm reaching up. And so only when faith and grace connect do we see real, true redemption. David did not ignore the offer, of course, at this hair-rising moment, thou art the man. Wow. He readily grasped the offered grace. It's staggering when you read the story, really. Nathan confronted David and described God's judgment over his house. And David responded with this. 2 Samuel 12 and 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Where's Bathsheba? Where's Uriah? Where's all the chaos? Where's all the lies? I have sinned. He's got this chronologically right. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, now listen, the Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. I'm going back to Exodus. If you kill one man's sheep, you gotta restore it fourfold and you're gonna give your life. and grace intercepted. <laughs> and we can talk about how bloody it must have been. How could God take four of his sons? He spared David's life. It was grace that confronted him. Grace that confronted him. Amen. And so he said, the Lord had put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Thou shalt not die. David's subsequent actions revealed the depth of his repentance. He prayed and fasted and he sought the face of God. And if you have an extra moment this week, read it one more time, Psalms 51. Don't speed read it. Don't do it when you're too busy to comprehend it. But read it verse by verse, line by line. Take off your sandals Slip his own when you're reading it. And you're gonna read the words of a broken man. You're gonna read the words of a man who just doesn't have a vocabulary broad enough to grasp the measure, the depth, the breadth of his sorrow. Amen, I'll tell you today, Psalms 51 is a moving passage of scripture because it's here that David is reconciling this between he and God. Like David, when we accept grace in our life, it changes us. We're more conscious of our own weaknesses and less judgmental of other failings. Amen. I don't, I don't think it's just age. I don't think. But the older I get, the more compassionate I am. Amen because you understand that we're none of us but just a few seconds away from bad decisions. And I see some people who just live their whole life with a bullwhip in their hand. And they're just waiting to crack that whip on anybody that steps out of line. 
But I'm gonna tell you, the more conscious you are of your own weaknesses, the more prone you are to be less judgmental about the failings of other people. We're more prone to help others who have fallen. Most of all, we wanna live a life worthy of the grace that's been shown to us. Now, I'm gonna close with this. When it came time to name their third son, David and Bathsheba I'm talking about. When it came time to name their third son, I think they made a decision that speaks volumes about how they really felt because they named their third son Nathan. I wonder how many times they said, Nathan, come here. Nathan, I love you. Nathan, you sure mean a lot to me. And they were reminded about a, a prophet that stepped into his life one day, painted a picture, and he walked dead into the center of it. He said, you are the man. The very one that had confronted David in his sin, woven into the twin genealogies of the son of David are many portraits of grace. The genealogy found in Matthew traces Jesus Christ through Solomon. The fourth born son of David and Bathsheba, amen, that's Solomon. The genealogy found in Luke traces Christ through Nathan. The third born son of David and Bathsheba, named for the prophet who graciously confronted the man after his own heart, the one who preaches, can I tell you today, is not your enemy. Not your enemy. A loved one, a friend who loves you enough to step on your toes, they're not your adversary. Somebody that can step into our life, a friend who confronts you when you're wrong, that's a friend worth keeping. You surround yourself with a bunch of yes people that tell you you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, you're headed for a heartache. Amen, I'm not suggesting you need people to keep you beaten to a pulp. That's not what I'm talking about, but we need people that can be honest with us. Amen, in our lives and tell us a friend who confronts is worth keeping. So here's, I, can close, I conclude and close with this and would ask you to stand. We need to keep the Nathans in our life close because you never know when we're gonna need that voice to just speak to us. Speak to us. I hope the Lord gives us a lot more time together. I truly mean this. But the last thing you ever need occupying a pulpit is someone whose voice you have the ability to silence. We need anointed preachers to stand behind this pulpit and preach to us the infallible, unyielding, unbending, unchanging word of God. Preach to us. Preach to us. You see, we're living in a day where it's just all milk toast. It's the absolute truth. Just believe whatever you want to believe and 
Some people say, well, you know, our differences, it's just a little bit of doctrinal differences. I think you misunderstand the word doctrinal. Because that's foundational. And if the foundation is off, the windows are not going to close right. The doors are not going to close right. If the foundation is off, and so I would ask you, I know you do, but I would ask you today, I'm just going to be a little bit selfish here. And I'm going to ask you to continue to pray for me. Amen. I want to be able to stand straight against the assailing winds that say change. The assailing winds that say you need to back off of that. The assailing popular vote today in our world that just says, you know, if we would just do this, then everything would be all right. No, no, we just need the word of God because it is only the word that can make us whole. It is only the word that can change us. It's not the personalities of people because people can come and go. We need the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So I'm gonna ask you now not to just pray for me continually, but pray for the ministers in our church. Amen. That God would help their voice to be a voice of reason, a voice that would stand true to the word of God. Amen. Let's pray for Brother Everett Bird, a voice in our daughter work in the city of Madison. That, amen. That he would speak the word with clarity. Amen. Because it is the word that is doing the work. Yes, it is. It is the word. We need the grace of God. Amen. Grace is not always warm and fuzzy. Sometimes it is confrontational. Aren't you glad that grace steps into our life and makes a change? Can we lift our hands and our voices together? I love you, Jesus. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.